On episode 556 of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Dr. Katrina Ubel and discuss her book, How to Lose Weight for the Last Time, Brain-Based Solutions for Permanent Weight Loss. You can find the full show notes for this episode at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 556. you decided you're ready to make a change to reclaim your health and fitness the 40 plus fitness podcast is here for you each week we dive deep into health and fitness topics that affect those of us over 40 i'm alan meisner i'm an nsam certified personal trainer with specializations in corrective exercise behavior change and fitness nutrition a fai certified functional aging specialist and an ota level 2 online trainer I'm joined each week by our co-host, Rachel Everett. She is an NASN certified personal trainer and a RRCA level one run coach. Let us be your coaches as you find your way on your health and fitness journey. All right, let's go. Getting older is more than just losing your hair or your skin getting thin and crepey. We get weaker, we gain weight. Our energy goes, and with it, we feel ourselves go. It's the aging curve. You look in the mirror, or you see a reflection in a window, and ask, who is that old dumpy? And you look away. There goes the confidence. Aches and pains seem to pop up like dandelions in your yard. If having an active retirement was part of the plan, well, what if I told you that you make this decision each and every day? You decide whether you're going down a steeper aging curve or you're slowing it. I think you know that. I think you try, are trying, but there's just something missing. With over six and a half years of training people over 40, people just like you, I've learned that there are a few key things that trip us up, and I've made sure to address all of them in my BFFT program. The BFIT for Task program. BFFT for short, is a six-week deep dive that addresses mindset, nutrition, fitness, and self-care in a way that meets you where you are and takes you forward. We find the tactics and strategies that will work for you, giving you the tools you need. However, it's not good enough to know what to do. You have to do it and keep doing it. Consistency wins. And through BFFT, you have the accountability and support to get you there. Learn more at 40plusfitness.com forward slash BFFT. Change is hard when you don't have the tools and accountability. BFFT will give you both, and you'll have me with you each and every step of the way. 40plusfitness.com forward slash BFFT. Not deciding is deciding. You can stay on your current path, or you can do something different. Check out 40plusfitness.com forward slash BFFT now. You owe it to yourself to at least learn more about the BFIT for Task program. I hope you will. Our guest today is a pediatrician turned master certified life and weight loss coach. She helps busy physicians permanently end their overeating and weight struggle through life coaching and the latest weight loss science. She also hosts the popular podcast, Weight Loss for Busy Physicians. She lost 50 pounds herself utilizing the tools she teaches. With no further ado, here's Dr. Katrina Ubel. Dr. Ubel, welcome to 40 Plus Fitness. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about your book, How to Lose Weight for the Last Time, Brain-Based Solutions for Permanent Weight Loss. And I don't think there's anyone listening to this that ever tried to lose weight for the last time. They almost feel like we're always in this cycle of try to lose weight, gain the weight back, not really understand why we can't really lock these things in. What I like about your book is that it really does kind of address all of it. And, it, and what I mean by that is it clearly defines that this is a mindset problem first. Absolutely. And then after we deal with some of the mindset stuff, which I think is probably a lifelong journey, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you put together kind of a protocol that can help us make this easier, make this more automatic. Mm-hmm. And then we develop the right habits and then we have a sustainable lifestyle and then the weight comes off. And, and that's how we keep the weight off too. 
And that's how we keep it off too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. Perfect. So it's a really good book for anyone who's wondered why they yo-yo and wondered why it just seems like there's somebody else in my head making me do things that I don't want to do. I tell myself I'm not going to eat the animal crackers. <laughs> and then I <laughs> and then lo and behold, I'm stuffing my face with them. Like I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> right. So let's talk about that from the over hunger and over desire perspective. Yes. So I think that, you know, it's like the way I try to approach this is it's definitely a mindset based based uh, approach. And that's very important. I think that we really focus on food and how we eat and what we eat a a bit too much, sometimes a lot too much. But there's also some basics in terms of just how our bodies function well, just like human physiology, that when we work with our bodies, instead of against them, the whole process of doing this is so much more comfortable. So in my opinion, if you can get to a place where the way that you're eating while weight is coming off is supportive to you, you feel satiated, you feel energetic, your digestion is good, you're sleeping well, it's a lot easier from that place to then look at the emotional aspects, right? The mindset issues, like all those other reasons why we're asking food to solve our problems for us, you know, like we can address that a lot better compared to when we're white knuckling it with our food, we're starving all the time, we're overeating, like a lot of drama around like, oh, I shouldn't have had that. And I can't go to that thing because they're going to have this there and I won't be able to control myself and the distraction from doing the real work that we need to do. So many people will talk about how they just feel hunger all the time or inappropriate hunger, or they feel like, you know, they can only go a couple hours before they're hungry. Or a lot of people are actually very fearful of experiencing hunger. And I just want to mention that there definitely are people who come from a background of lack where maybe they did really go hungry as a child or, you know, as a younger adult. And there's some issues around that, you know, there's a lot of emotional issues. So I don't want to downplay that when I say like, you know, hunger is okay. It's like, Yeah, but as long as it's feeling tolerable and not like clobbering you over the head, like you feel like you're going to pass out and faint, you know, and that kind of thing. So the best way to address over hunger is to get our hormones to function the way they're supposed to function, essentially like hitting, I think it was like hitting the reset button on our bodies. Like if humans have been around for 200,000 years, it's really just the last really even just a couple hundred years that a lot of foods have been so available, but really only more like the last 30 to 40 years where these foods are everywhere and they're, you know, relatively inexpensive and it's getting like harder and harder to not eat them. So you have to understand like our bodies have not adapted. So when we're eating highly refined food, when we're eating a lot of foods that contain sugar and refined flour, it messes with the way your body functions. You know, of course, in the book, I go into more detail about that. But because of the way our bodies respond to that, when we feel hunger, it feels much more like an emergency. It feels really extreme. It feels like, you know, like your your stomach is eating itself or your stomach's eating your spine, you know, like that level or like people talk about being hangry, you know, the combination of hungry and angry. It's like you're so mad about being hungry, you know, like all of that is like, oh, kind of funny. We laugh about it. But it's actually not normal to experience hunger in that way. And so when we take a break from regular flour and sugar consumption, and I'm not saying you can't ever have it again, I'm just saying you're taking a break. It's like you're just, it's like rebooting your phone or rebooting your computer. You're just like taking a minute to pause and let everything settle back down. So what you notice then is the hunger that you experience is much more gentle. I think of it as like when you have been eating all that stuff, like the hunger can feel like a wave crashing over you, just like pummeling you. But when you've stopped eating it and everything is evened out, like it feels like a little Caribbean wave lapping at your ankles. It's just a a real subtle, soft little suggestion. Hey, you could eat or not doesn't matter, you know, like it's okay. Because, you know, humans never had food so readily available. There were lots of times for the vast majority of human existence that humans were hungry and didn't eat and they didn't collapse. They didn't faint. No, they had energy and they went and found some food, you know, like they went and created whatever they needed to, whether it was hunting or gathering or whatever. So that's the first thing with overhunger. And it's one of those things where often we don't even recognize how extreme the hunger is until we're not feeling it anymore. And then we start going, wait a minute, this is like incredible. Like who knew this was possible to like not really be that hungry? Like, wow, it's really not that hard to not overeat when you're not that hungry. 
you know, it makes it a lot easier. Like my experience with dieting over decades was the opposite, extreme hunger, just feeling this incessant, constant gnawing hunger that was just very much a means to an end. So I could just try to get this weight off. So that's what we deal with with over hunger. From an over desire standpoint, over desire to me just means wanting food more than is appropriate for the amount of food that your body needs. So of course, it makes sense because you know, food keeps us alive, (laughs) that we would want to prioritize food at least to a certain extent, and that our brains would do that. But what happens for those of us who have over desire, who are overeating, or I always kind of think of it as like, if you've ever sat in a meeting around a conference table and someone brought some treats and they're in the middle of the table and it's like cookies or something, a cookie platter, and everyone's having the meeting, but you're having intrusive thoughts about the cookies and is someone going to take one and are they going to pass it around? And like, what if no one takes one? And, but I really want one. And would it be weird if I grab one now? Is it weird if I'm the first one to take one? What if everybody leaves and no one's taken one? Like maybe I should just sneak back and grab one. I, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced that, but just like literally oh, yeah, like yeah. sitting, sitting in a con- conference room, they bring in lunch and they set it over there on the counter and you can smell it and you can see it. And the the lunch is right there. And the dude's talking and now it's you like can't Charlie even pay Brown's teacher. It's like, wah, wah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. A hundred percent, hundred percent. So that's over desire. You know, like I remember looking at other people. I'm like, they don't seem to care that there's cookies on this table. Like, why can I not think about anything else? That's because our brains have gotten confused in thinking like, this is essential for survival. It's extremely important and you better eat it right now because bad things are going to happen if you don't, essentially is what's happening there. And so that's a combination of the way our brains respond to eating more processed foods that contain more sugar and flour. So of course, taking a break from that really helps with over desire too. But we also most of us are not aware of how the weight like our beliefs and our thoughts about food, how that creates over desire. You know, so if you have thoughts or beliefs around certain foods, like your favorite things or your trigger foods, like I can't control myself around that food, it's my favorite. If that's around me, forget it, I'm going to eat everything. You know, if I see that there's no chance that I'm not going to eat that. And we think we're just conveying the news, like we're just like, hey, just letting you know what the facts are. But really, what that is, is a story we're telling ourselves about our behavior around this food, we're telling ourselves we should think this way, feel this way around this food and act this way around this food. And that actually creates a lot of excess desire. So we want to get to a place, what I I always call it peace and freedom around food. And what that means to me is you can be around all of those foods, all of your favorite foods, all of the things that are, you know, historically difficult for you to control yourself around. And it's not like you hate them or you think they're gross or anything like that. It's just, they're just not that important to you anymore. If you eat it, you know, it'll taste good and that's fine. Or you could also just as easily not eat it and you're totally fine as well. It's really a place of confidence and control and power really, right? Because you've taken the power back from the food, right? Like from controlling it, we think the power, the food has the power, then the food controls us. When the food is just this inert substance that happens to be digestible, it's just sitting there. Like it has no power over us. It's our thoughts about it that have the power. So that's what we want to work on. We want to understand that, yes, there's certain ways that help our bodies to have more of an appropriate amount of desire for food, but also really looking at the contribution that our thoughts and beliefs have around food, because that makes a huge difference. I've done it myself on many. I mean, just to give you an example, it's not actually in the book. This was actually after I lost my weight. I was finding myself eating peanut butter, like spoonful, you know, out of the container, you know, and like, you know, one spoonful, okay, whatever. And then it was like starting to get to be more and more. And I remember the day that I kept going back for another spoonful and I looked in the container and I was like, I think I've eaten literally a cup of peanut butter in the last however long, 30 minutes or something. And that felt like an absolute brick in my stomach. Like it did not feel good. Yet I still was like wanting that emotional, you know, like I wanted to feel different than how I was feeling. And so I was asking the peanut butter to do that. And I was realizing like, I'm having intrusive thoughts about going back and having another scoop of peanut butter. So I have over desire for this. And so I had to do that work to remove that excess desire. And now, I mean, I have peanut butter in my pantry all the time. I have children. (laughs) It's like, yes, we have peanut butter. And I literally never think of it. I can have it if I want it. And also most of the time, I just don't care. I can eat it or not eat it. It doesn't matter to me. And that is that peace and freedom around food. It's like whatever the food is, I'm going to be okay. 
let's talk a little bit about that because I think the peace and freedom aspect of this is kind of where we're breaking away from the cycle. And most of us, when we're gaining weight and we can't keep the weight off, we're in this cycle where we're emotionally bound to the food. We're over hungry, over desire or both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's the cycle and to really to break through this cycle and use it for our own benefit, we've, we've got to separate the fact that there's this reptilian brain that just thinks, feels, does <laughs> over and over mm-hmm. and over. So we, that's why we repeat mm-hmm. these cycles and they get ingrained and they're wired and they're in their habits. And to break that, to get to where we want to be with peace and freedom with food, we've got to turn on the human part of the brain and kind of break through those things and yeah. create and rewire. Can you talk about the thinking cycle and how that all puts us either in a bad circle or a good circle? Yeah. So, I mean, the thinking cycle is something that was uh, comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. So if any listeners have ever participated in that, they might be familiar with this. It was created by Aaron Beck, who's a psychiatrist, but I'm not a therapist, but I, you know, we can learn a lot from this. Like for our purposes, we can still utilize it. And really what it comes down to is that the way we think our interpretation of whatever is happening in the world around us, our experience of life, those are our thoughts. And we get to choose what those thoughts are. If you've ever changed your mind about something, if you've ever decided to reframe a certain thing, you know, thing that happened to yourself, like we know we can do this. We can decide to think differently. That doesn't mean we always have to or should, but it is available to us if we want to do that. Then the way that we think creates our feelings or emotions. I use those terms interchangeably. And that's really like the result of you thinking a thought, which is just two neurons in your brain having a synaptic connection, like a chemical connection. There's a whole chemical cascade that's triggered in our bodies. And that's our feeling. You know, if you think about maybe the feeling of being really nervous, for me, nervous is always the easiest one, like that butterfly in, you know, uh, feeling in your stomach, but maybe it's like anger, or maybe it's even like your heart's going to split open from joy or love for somebody like that's all a result of the way that we're thinking. And then the way that we feel drives our actions. And that's like what we do, but it's also what we don't do. When we're talking about weight loss, often there's inaction, right? You know, like you were saying, like, why don't we do the things we know we should? And why do we do the things we know we shouldn't, right? Like it's all coming from the way we think and feel. And that's what's driving our actions, whether it's things that are supportive or not. So if you're thinking thoughts that create feelings that drive you to overeat, right? Or to eat, you know, more food than your body needs, or maybe a combination of foods that doesn't really serve your body, there's going to be a result to that. And that result will probably be weight gain, or it could be just, you know, stagnation, plateau, just not losing if that's what what one of your goals is. And so what we do when we're typically dieting is we focus on the actions, right? Everybody's saying, hey, eat this way. Don't eat that way. Exercise this way. Don't exercise that way. And, you know, here's the thing. If you do those things regularly, it will work for most people. I mean, I've done all kinds of things and I have lost weight, but I always gained it back again, you know, or I wasn't willing to continue doing it, whatever it was. It just wasn't going to be something that was going to work out for me long term. So when we still have the old thoughts and feelings that drive the action of overeating, which creates weight gain, and we just try to take different actions, you know, we're white knuckling it through, we're forcing ourselves trying to use willpower to take different actions. We can get some results for a while, but the problem is we still are thinking and feeling that old way that drives the action of overeating. And so we have to understand that better. So when it comes to the brain, I like to keep it super simple. I'm not a neurologist and I don't think any of us need to be to understand what's happening in our brains. We need to recognize that there are two different parts involved in decision-making. The first part, like you called it the primitive or the reptilian brain, I call it the primitive brain. I mean, it's an important part of our brain. It's really what's helped keep us alive. It's not bad. It's just much less mature. And so I think of it as more like a toddler. Toddlers live in the moment, right? They're not thinking about next week. You know, (laughs) they don't even know what tomorrow is, right? But they're just like, what do I want to do right now that's going to be fun and make me feel good? And that part of us is like, I don't feel like doing that today. I don't feel like eating that. Let's order pizza. You know, that's that part of us that is just like, forget what the plans are. I want to feel good right now. Then there's the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that makes us human. 
that separates us from the animals. It's not just about survival. It's really about thinking for the future. It's able to think about the past. It's able to plan. It's much more sophisticated. And I think of that part of the brain more as like the supervising mother of the toddler. (laughs) And so that's what we want to be doing. We want to recognize there's nothing wrong with having that primitive brain. It has an important role, but also it needs supervision. You can't just let toddlers run amok alone, unsupervised in the house. Like, bad things happen if you do that. So what we want to do is access that more wise part of our brain that is going to be keeping our overall best interests at heart. And we want to rely on that as much as we can. One of the best ways I know to do that is to plan for the future. So like if you plan your food in advance, meaning like maybe the night before you go, okay, these are the things I'm going to eat. And it doesn't have to be involved, just like the basics of what you're going to have. Then the next day, like when you've had a stressful morning and you're at work and you don't really feel like eating that lunch that you made that's on plan for you and supportive, it doesn't really matter if you feel like it or not. All you have to do is follow your plan. You know that the plan was made from that prefrontal cortex and there's not really anything up for discussion. There's no argument that needs to happen. There's no negotiations. Like to kind of remind myself, like not every meal has to be the very best thing you've ever eaten. <laughs> it's okay if you don't really want to have that. And what I also want to say is that I'm a really big proponent that everything that you eat, like make sure it tastes good to you. I spent so many years forcing myself to eat all kinds of wacky diet foods and weird recipes that I didn't even like. Like we're not doing that, right? Let's let's actually eat food that is palatable to us that we enjoy. So it's not a hardship to eat on plan. Like maybe it would be fun to, you know, have the tortilla chips. That was always my thing. Like these, the pharmaceutical reps would bring in these huge bags of tortilla chips. And I was just like mindlessly eating them. I love them. So it's like, yeah, those could be good. But you know what? I can also go to Qdoba and get those chips anytime I want to. So I don't need to eat them now because I didn't plan for them now. But later, if I want to plan for them, I can because I'm thinking from that prefrontal cortex. So I think that's, you know, kind of a, a simplified version of how to think about it. But it's it also doesn't have to be so complicated. So much of weight loss, I feel like has become so complicated and time consuming. And it really it just doesn't have to be. I think the key, the key here is we have to slow down a little bit. Too many times we find ourselves mindlessly doing something or just automatically doing something. Uh, and then that typically leads to shame or anger, or frustration. Um, and which is not productive. Um, so what we have to do is look at this this process and when we've done something that we didn't plan to do, break it down. okay, what was I feeling? what was I thinking? what was going on? And then the next time we kind of find ourselves in that space and it's maybe it's a point in time you you mentioned Atlas, you were doing your charts. Mm-hmm. You, you know, basically you got into a cycle. Yes. And it was just this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then that stuff just happened and you caught yourself. And so from that point, you basically slowed yourself down. You kind of put some space there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where the rubber hits the road here. Yeah. I think of it as like, there's a, there's like a potential space, you know, there's like something that happened, like something happens for you and you get the idea. I want to go eat something or what do we have to eat? Let me see what we have to eat or whatever the thought is, right. You know, like we're going to, I'm going to move my way toward the pantry or the freezer or like whatever it is, wherever the food is. And so often we say like, I don't know why I was just eating it or before I knew what happened. I was eating it or it was all gone. It's like we kind of almost go into a fog, but also when it is so habitual to do these things and to cope in our lives with food, there isn't a lot of thought happening there because it becomes like the brain's very efficient. If this is just what we do, it just basically downregulates the whole decision-making process so that you just don't have to think so hard about it. You know, you don't have to think about like how to brush your teeth every single time you do it. You just know it. Or driving is another great example. So what we have to do or what we're invited to do, really, because we don't have to do anything, but we're invited to do is to recognize, hey, you know what? I'm going to build awareness around the fact that I want to eat this food. And before I eat it, I'm not telling myself I can't have it or I shouldn't have it. I'm just saying, hey, before I have it, can I take a moment to just check in with myself to figure out what's going on for me? And because we know our actions come after our emotions, and many of us are not aware of our emotional lives, we can maybe start with, you know, how am I feeling? Like, what's going on for me? Another great question I like is, what is the problem that I'm asking food to solve for me right now? 
right? Because I mean, unless you're physically hungry, but like assuming you're not, because most of the time when we're doing this kind of behavior, we're not physically hungry. Like, what is it? And it's not like we don't have to judge ourselves or put pressure on ourselves to figure it out. It's just coming from genuine curiosity and interest. We just want to understand better what it is that we're doing. If we just keep overeating and then try to shove it away, pretend like it doesn't exist, ooh, this, this detestable part of me that I just want to ignore and pretend like isn't there, then we just keep repeating the same cycle, which so many of us have had that experience, right? We're like, you know, and then we start just thinking something's wrong with me. It's not possible for me. You know, I'm broken. I'm hopeless beyond any repair, you know, all these things that are just, of course, not true. So if we can even just create a little space, I'm talking maybe 15 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, maybe even if you don't know what the emotion is, maybe you can just ask yourself like, okay, well, what was even just going on right now? Like, what am I thinking about right now? And it could be as simple as like, you're just bored or restless, or maybe a little lonely, or maybe you feel a little disconnected. A lot of us use food to create this feeling of connection, companionship. It's not bad. None of it's bad. It's just, we want to understand it better. And once you have a little insight into that, and even if you don't, I mean, it's okay if you try the first couple of times and you don't figure it out, but if you keep staying committed to that, then you can ask yourself, do I still want to eat that? And if you do, you can go ahead and do that. That's fine. But then maybe the next time you can get a little bit more insight. Maybe you can find that emotion in your body and understand, like, I always like it. It's like, if you say like, I just feel so lonely, kind of asking myself, like, how do I know I'm lonely? Like, what does lonely really feel like in my body? You know, we teach small children what the emotions are. And then we just know, like, I'm mad. Like, how do you know? How do you know you're mad? It's so an interesting thing, actually, I think, to just kind of explore, like, what does it feel like in my body? And then you can find it in your body, maybe spend a little time with it and just be there with it. You're not trying to change it. Keep breathing, just noticing. How would you describe it? You know, rating the intensity maybe a little bit. And maybe you can do that for a minute before you decide to eat the food. But then next time, maybe you can go for two minutes. Maybe you can go a little bit longer. And maybe over the course of time, you can build that up to staying with that emotion for four or five minutes. Always asking yourself at the end, do I still want to eat this? And what you find over the course of time is just by staying with that emotion, it actually goes away. It just solves for itself. And then you ask yourself, do I still want that food? And the answer is no. And then sometimes we're like, but I still could eat it, so I'm going to. <laughs> and if you do that, that's okay. But over the course of time, when we build our relationship with ourselves and we know like we're going to meet our own needs, I'm not going to let you starve. It's going to be okay, right? Like, because we have let ourselves starve, many of us, for many, you know, over the years. So it's important to reassure ourselves of that. But then we can just remind ourselves, you know, I can have that another time. But right now I don't really need it or want it. So I'm not going to eat when I don't need or want the food. And that's a way to honor myself. And if at another time I want it, okay, then I can, you know, address this again. But it sounds kind of almost like kind of sort of simple or like, really, that's what you have to do. But I'm telling you, this is a game changer for people who have struggled with overeating, have gained and lost, yo-yoed, tried all the diets, can't figure it out. I just want to say one more thing that the way I sometimes think about dieting is like, you know, when we're trying all the different diets and it's like, okay, now I'm going to go plant-based and okay, now I'm going to go keto. Now I'm going to whatever, do paleo or whatever it is. What we're doing, it's like having a wound on your body and then just changing the band-aid again and again, right? Like changing the dressing, going like, okay, well, it's not healing. Maybe I need a different band-aid. Maybe I need a band-aid of this size or one that looks like this, but we're not actually healing the problem, right? And that's where we're like, so focused on food, like, oh, we think it's the bandaid that's going to do it. And when we do this work to really understand the emotional component, we heal the actual wound. You don't need a bandaid anymore. It's just not that important anymore. Food no longer has to serve that role for you anymore. That's peace and freedom around food. That's actually solving for the problem. Now there's this, I'm going to say new thing <laughs> coming out you know, two thirds of people in the United States are overweight. And so this is not like there's just a few people out there that have this issue. There's, there's a lot of us that have struggled with our weight and a lot more probably will. But the way our culture tends to go is it, it almost kind of, I just want to say it, it jackknifes. It just completely does this knee jerk reaction to just about anything. And so a lot of people will say, okay, I want to lose weight. And now there's this new concept called fat shaming, which is a thing. I see it. I hear it. I know about it. It's real. But there's individuals that are so into this diet culture 
concept stuff that they're like, well, if you want to lose weight, that's a form of fat shaming because you're saying you're not good enough. It's really a concept I can't actually wrap my mind around, but there probably are some people that have kind of felt like, and you know, because I think a lot of us approach this and say, well, I'm, I need to change because I'm not a good person. And it's wrong to think that you're a bad person because you're overweight. So I get a little bit of it. Having a weight problem does not make you a bad person. It was like totally separate things. Like who you are as a human being and the size of your body and your eating habits are two totally separate things. Right. And then so for you to want to lose weight does not mean that you're disrespecting who you are. Or disrespecting others. Some people feel offended if someone else they know loses weight. It's a, It's been a real interesting thing. And it's interesting that you've picked up on it because I have too. That Here's why I think it's especially problematic. Because, you know, if we're not allowed to say or or express our desire to live in a smaller body, then we'll feel even more shame. We already feel shame about the struggle that we have. Then we'll feel even more shame and hide even more like, don't tell anybody, but I actually do secretly want to lose weight. And the problem is you can't do that in secret because people will see it on your body, right? Like (laughs) even if you don't talk to anybody about it, they can still tell that your body has changed. Here's the way that I, I think like with so many things, the pendulum swings. I think, yes, the messaging is so important like your value does not lie in what your body looks like, right? Like it really does not. But at the same time, we all have autonomy to decide what size body we would like to live in. Some of us just want to be more comfortable, you know, (laughs) or for some people, they don't have, you know, health problems the way that, you know, when they're weighing less than, than they do when they weigh more. And they just prefer that, you know, some people are like, my knees hurt more and I don't want my knees to hurt. Like that has nothing to do with diet culture, right? Really what it comes down to is I think ultimately all of us have this tendency to think that we know how to live other people's lives better than they do. You know what I mean? So we're like, well, this is what's worked for me. And this is the way I think about it. And you, everybody else should think about it the same way. And instead, we just have to focus on ourselves, like what ourselves, what do we want? What do I want for myself? What do I prefer? And why do I want that? And if I can create that for myself in a way that's supportive, in a way that's sustainable, I don't see what the problem is, you know, but I will say that some people will say, well, by writing a diet book, like you're just saying that everybody needs to lose weight. And that is not what I'm saying. I do not think that thinner is always better or even necessarily ever better. I don't care what people weigh. That's like literally not not something that is a goal of mine or any kind of impact I'm desiring to make. But what I am desiring to do is to help people find peace and freedom around food. And when you do that, people who have been overeating and stop doing that will often find that some weight comes off just automatically. So I like to say like the title of my book is how to lose weight for the last time, but it has two meanings to me. The first meaning is, would you like to lose weight? Yes, I can help you do that. Here's some great steps. But the second meaning is like another way to lose weight for the last time is to just stop trying to lose weight. You know, you can focus on strength, wellness, how energetic you are, how high quality is your sleep? What's your digestion like? What's it like to be you around food and maybe improve that figuring out how to deal with your emotions and you know, your emotional life in a way that doesn't use food or alcohol as a crutch. And then we just see what happens, right? You might lose some weight and that could be okay. And maybe you won't. And that could be okay too. But I think part of the idea is particularly for women is this, you know, we've been sort of sold this like societal kind of message that the way to be acceptable, the way to be valuable, the way to be okay and worthy is to be whatever the current ideal body shape or size is like you, you know, so we start thinking, and I'm not saying men don't experience it, but I think for women, it can be kind of more heavily ingrained that like the way for me to be okay, the way for me to like myself for the way for me to have the life that I want to live is to lose weight. And that is a problem (laughs) because when you lose weight, you will still be you just in a smaller body. And, you know, I've experienced that too. So many times I was, it's almost like I expected myself to have a brain transplant. I'm like, well, I'm thin now, so I shouldn't ever have a problem anymore, (laughs) which makes no logical sense, but it's like, we still kind of hope that it's the case. So that's the kind of stuff that we need to dissolve. Like, no, you know, 
you need to work on your sense of self-worth and your thoughts about yourself. That's a whole different, you know, situation that is, you know, closely tied to weight, but then you just lose weight because you want to, because you prefer to, not because you're trying to make up for some, you know, deficiency that you believe you have. Now, in the book, you have an eight-part protocol, and I think this is where we take all that mindset work and some of the tools that you share in the book up till this point, and we put them in place, and we put them in place in a way that's sustainable for the long term, which I think is kind of the critical aspect for this. When you build this protocol, this is not an eight-week protocol or an eight-month protocol. This is a for the, can you do this for the rest of your life? Eight part protocol. <laughs> um, can you can you talk about the protocol and how it works? Right. Yeah. So it's really important to me to stress how important it is for everybody to have autonomy in how they do this. Like so often we think, well, I can't possibly be trusted to know how I should eat or what I should do because I'm the one who got myself into this predicament to begin with. So, you know, that's also the messaging, like we're the problem, we're the weak ones, we're the ones who have, you know, whatever it is, undisciplined, we need someone else to whip us into shape, someone else to tell us what to do, except then, you know, we end up rebelling against it or it doesn't work really for our schedule or our family, or we don't think the food tastes good or whatever it is. So when we create the protocol for ourselves, it's individual to ourselves. Like my clients, none of them have the same plan because none of them have the same life. And so this is like the best news ever. When you create your own plan, there's nothing to rebel against. You only put food on it that tastes good to you that you enjoy eating, if time pressure or needing to be efficient is a priority, like you build that in, you make it so that it works for your specific life. And definitely, we don't want to be doing any kind of things that are like means to an end kind of behaviors, like I'll do this now just to lose the weight, and then I'll figure out in maintenance, like you won't trust me, because for decades, I thought that and I never figured it out. Like, you have to figure out a way to do it sustainably, where the plan that helps you to lose weight doesn't feel like a hardship. It's like you're more than happy to continue doing this for as long as you need to. And that is how you end up losing weight and keeping it off. Not to say that you don't ever change it. You might, but you're not doing it because you can't tolerate it you know, anymore, right? You change it for other reasons. So I also just want to mention that, you know, everybody is different. And some people really like to jump in and kind of do everything all at once. And other people want a little bit of a slower, gradual approach. And I just want to say that I think either way is fine. Like if any of these eight parts don't resonate, they don't feel right to you, you don't want to do them right now, then don't do them right now. But you know that they're available to you. Some people like to do one thing, really establish that, then keep adding. Other people are more like jump into the deep end head first. And and either way is completely fine. But I'm certainly not saying that you have to do all of these eight things to have success. I don't think that's true, but they are great tools to help. So the first is keeping a food journal. And I do this very simply. I actually ask my clients not to use any of the apps because unintentionally you'll end up seeing like different macros and calorie counts and things. And that just messes with your head. So many of us are like, you know, trying to reform ourselves as calorie counters or points counters or like whatever it was. We don't need any of that stuff. Like what you need is maybe the notes app on your phone or a piece of paper and a pencil. And all you're going to write down is what you ate, like literally what you ate. Like for dinner last night, I had grilled salmon, roasted potatoes, grilled asparagus. That's all you write down. This is not hard to do. (laughs) You know, it doesn't take long because we often hear food journaling. Oh, it's the worst, right? No, we just write down what we ate. We don't have to worry so much about amounts unless it feels relevant to us. You know, if we're like, well, I ate three hamburgers when I normally would eat one, maybe that's relevant. You know, (laughs) like that, that could be worthwhile to put down. And the point of this is not for it to be like the mean teacher who's, you know, taking the ruler against your knuckles, but instead for you to just build awareness. What do I actually? eat. So many people will tell me like, I eat so healthy. I don't overeat. And they totally struggle with their weight. Well, but it's like, I eat so healthy, except for all these other things that I eat. And it's like, our brains are so slick. We will literally forget that we eat them. We will literally forget. So we just want to have some evidence because we won't remember. But the other thing is, you know, we often think, oh, well, things aren't working out very well. We can figure out what to change. Yes. But the other thing that's great about a food journal is when you are getting results, you know what gives you results, right? So if later you're stuck in a plateau or whatever's going on, you can refer back and go, hey, you know what? Things were going great. 
when I was eating these things, maybe I should bring those back in again. So that's what a food journal is. Number two is taking a break from sugar and flour. And what I mean by that is just on a regular basis. So like your regular food that you're eating day in, day out, isn't going to contain that. That does not mean that your food necessarily is low carb. It could be low carb if you like that, if you feel good with that. I ate tons of carbs when I lost weight. So that's it's not low carb. It just means that you're not eating it in the form of added sugar or added flour. This is actually way simpler than you think. I always tell my clients, I never give them any recipes. I'm like, if you know what food you like to eat, a lot of it will naturally be devoid of flour and sugar. Just eat those things. (laughs) It's really, really simple. It's like more, the more complicated the the recipe, the more likely you're going to deal with that and the more processed the food. But the good news is, is that there's so, even if you don't cook, there's so many places now like grocery stores and delis and stuff where you can get all the things that you need pre-made and you can totally do fine without that. So it doesn't mean that you don't ever eat it again. It's just that it helps your body to function hormonally so much better. It helps you to release weight so much better. It makes you more insulin sensitive which helps with weight loss. And then, you know, you can start to add it in gradually, you know, and that's such a great opportunity for you to see how you do. Like for me, I used to be obsessed with bread, like any bread that was near me was in trouble because it was going to get eaten. And then over the pandemic, my husband started baking sourdough bread, like so many people did, he still does. So we're like two and a half years in now of him making this amazing, you know, from his own starter that he created bread. I cannot tell you the miracle it feels still every week when I'm like, I could eat it or I cannot eat it. It really doesn't matter. That's where it's like, so do I eat flour and sugar? I do, but I don't feel controlled by it at all. I could take it or I could leave it. It really doesn't. It's not an issue for me. So we want to practice that. We want to sometimes eat that food and go, whoa, my brain like got lit up by that. The chatter's back. Okay, there's some work to do on that. What are my thoughts about that food? Let me figure out a way to, you know, peacefully coexist with that. The third one is eating at meals. And so I have a whole section in the book about the snack food industry and how really it was created to sell more food because they couldn't get us to eat more food at mealtimes. And really physiologically, we do not need to eat snacks. We are not infants. We are not toddlers. Like our bodies definitely can go four or five, six hours between meals Absolutely. Lots of people will say like, you need to keep the metabolism up and you need to do this and that and the other thing. Again, I just go back to like, if you think that our ancestors were eating every three hours, small meals all the time, (laughs) they definitely were not. And they were trim. They were at fighting weight for sure. So not to say that if you aren't physically hungry later, you can't eat. But what we want to do is make sure that our meals are satiating enough that we can make it. And so freeing to not have to think about eating so often. Like, and I got to prepare this other little meal. And for very busy people or people with unpredictable schedules, it's just not sustainable to have to do so much food prep. So if you decide, you know, I'm going to eat three meals a day and I'm not going to eat snacks. Like a lot of people start losing a lot of weight just with that. So that's amazing. Number four is creating the rules for your protocol. So that is deciding like how often you're going to eat, you know, about what times you're going to eat. Of course, there can be flexibility and even day to day. Some people have a different protocol for the weekends or or the weekdays, or if your weekdays shift, you know, maybe some days you work from home and some days you're in the office, you can change it up based on how you decide to do that, like that there's lots of flexibility there. But you know, going like, well, so and so expert says I have to eat this way or that way or don't eat after this time or, you know, I get late home late from work, but then I'm super hungry, but they say you shouldn't eat after that time. I say toss all of that out, you just have to look like is your body asking for food? Are you actually physically hungry? Then you should probably eat something. And it's okay if it's a little bit later. Like we think that denying our needs is going to help us to lose weight. It's not. It just makes us overeat more. We get the opposite effect. Number five is intermittent fasting. This is not for everybody. This is just a suggestion for my clients who are busy doctors. It's really, it can be just one of the most amazing things that's possible because emergencies happen. You know, you're all of a sudden you thought you're going to have lunch and now you have to work through it. You know, just things come up and it's so nice when your body is like, okay, cool. We're not eating. That's fine. You know, (laughs) so intermittent fasting, just to be clear, is not an eating disorder in disguise. This is not like, oh, you know, this is how we justify like, you know, like really under eating. That's not what it is. It's eating all of the food that you would typically eat over the day, but over a shorter eating window. And some people really, really love it. The point of that is to give you a longer fasting period because we already fast at night just to extend that a little bit. That helps us to be more insulin sensitive, keeps our insulin levels low. And especially for people who like eating larger meals, who just enjoy the feeling of feeling fuller, it can be really nice because when you 
you do eat, you tend to eat a little bit more. Also, a lot of people don't like eating breakfast. It's just not their thing. Great. Then you don't have to. (laughs) It's not the most important meal of the day. Okay. Number six is planning ahead. That's like what we were talking about, which is, um, you know, planning, you know, at least the night before what you're going to have the next day. And, um, and the great news is, is when you plan for your food for the next day and you just follow that plan, boom, your food journal is already filled out. So two for one here. So easy. (laughs) You just follow what it was. And if you had to change something for some reason, then you can do that. And then number seven is including exceptions and exceptions are just times when you're eating off of your plan, right? So that would typically be things that are maybe more flour, sugar containing, or maybe you're deciding not to have alcohol most of the time, but then as an exception, you want to have that. And so the point of that is, you know, we're not robots. We're going to want to have some of these foods, most of us from time to time and deciding how we want to do that. So I typically suggest when people are in the weight loss phase that they can still be losing weight just fine on one a week. And, but it's up to, you know, it's up to everybody. I have other clients who are like, yeah, I don't even feel like I want it. Like, cool. You don't have to do that at all, but it can be available to you. And then the eighth tool is weighing yourself daily, which is something that a lot of people get uh, pretty worked up about and they get mad. I just want to say, that, you know, what we have to remember is this is all related to our thoughts, like your gravitational pull on the scale at any given moment in time, as read out by this, you know, glass and metal and electronics, you know, device that's on the floor is not judging you. It is not telling you whether you are a good person or a bad person. It is not telling you whether it's a good day or a bad day. It's just a reflection of some facts about your body in that moment. So many of us have such complicated thoughts and beliefs around the scale by weighing ourselves daily. We have the opportunity to unravel that. We have the opportunity to go, hey, you know what? I get to feel how I want to feel about myself no matter what the scale reads. And it also helps us, those of us, I was like this too, who feel very entitled. Well, you know, for two days or three days, I followed my plan just fine. I should for sure see a pound down on the scale. And when I don't see it on the scale, I go, this isn't working and I'm just going to eat whatever anyway. And what we learn when we weigh ourselves daily is that, you know, we're playing the long game here. You might not see results from what you ate today for a couple of weeks, like two or three weeks. You know, what you're seeing today is a reflection of a whole lot of other things. Like last time you went to the bathroom, possible hormonal changes, hydration status, how salty your food has been. Like there's so many factors that play into that. And so when you weigh daily, you can actually create a reasonable set of data points to follow the trend versus if you weigh yourself once a week or once a month, depending on when you catch yourself, you might be up because you ate sushi the day before (laughs) and it was all that soy sauce or something and you're like kind of bloated or whatever. So people then, if they don't weigh very frequently, will sometimes get upset. They're like, I haven't weighed myself in a while. I've been following my plan and look, I weighed myself again. I haven't lost or I haven't lost as much as I wanted to. Well, right. But we don't even know what the pattern has been. So I take from this, like the way that as doctors, we treat somebody's lab values, you know, you don't necessarily, especially when someone's like hospitalized, you're following the trend. You're not being very reactive to any individual data point. You're just looking at the pattern and seeing what's going on. And when you start noticing the trend going up and you know, you haven't been following your plan. Okay. Well, that's good data. It's just feedback. That's all. Now we know. Okay. We have the opportunity to readjust. Maybe that isn't really working. So, you know, the weighing daily thing, I think doesn't have to be necessarily forever, but, but it's definitely a good way to keep track for maintenance as well. Like we don't have to gain 10 or 20 pounds before we decide, Oh, Hey, weird. I'm gaining this weight back. Um, you know, we can catch it a little bit earlier. So those are the eight tools. And like I said, you know, you can use all of them, you can use some of them, you can have tons of success, you know, no matter how you work it, it's more that you are consistent in doing that and that you're working with yourself instead of against yourself. Yeah. And I would encourage people to try each of the eight. Don't just say, well, that's not for me because I don't, you know, I don't like the food journal. So that's not for me. Just try it. Give yourself three weeks, four Mm -hmm. weeks, see what you learn. And if it's not a helpful tool, then do away with it. Try some intermittent fasting a couple of times a week, see how it feels, see how you do see if that helps. And if it's not working for you, then yeah, toss it. Most of my clients end up liking being able to fast, but I have definitely had clients who have really tried with the fasting and they just never feel good. And you know what? Great. Then the solution to that is you just eat. It's okay. Like there's nothing bad. (laughs) You can't do that. You know, it's okay. Yeah. Dr. Yubel, I define wellness as being the healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. What are three strategies or tactics to get and stay well? So my first one is you have to know how to manage your emotional life. Like you've got to learn how to even understand what 
your emotional life is like, I, you know, I grew up raised by German immigrants. I mean, emotions were not a thing. This is just not something I ever learned. And I was in my forties when I actually started figuring out like, what is an emotion? What do I actually feel like? I literally don't even know. So I think that's a huge piece of wellness because I think a lot of the areas where we struggle are as a result of us avoiding our emotions. We don't know what to do with them. We don't want to feel them. It feels scary. It feels unacceptable. Whatever it is, we just try to stuff them down and we use other behaviors and other kind of crutches to keep us from experiencing them. So first of all, like moving toward that, I'm not exaggerating when I say I hired a therapist to teach me how to feel. I literally did like to teach me how to cry. Like I couldn't, I'd be like, I feel like it is in there, but it, I can't get it to come out. Like that was the level of like, you know, kind of repression I had been holding for emotions for so, so, so long. So I'm not saying somebody necessarily has to hire a therapist to do that, but just to point out, like, if it's hard for you, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. That is a normal thing, particularly depending on, you know, what your upbringing and just what your life has been like. So I think that's the first part. I think the, the next part about really being happy is, developing that positive relationship with yourself. You know, what I mean by that is doing what you say you're going to do for yourself. What we usually do is we, you know, we're totally accountable to everybody else in our lives. And if we tell them we're going to do something, we're for sure going to do it. But when it comes to ourselves, it's a bit hit or miss, right? Like I might, I might not. And then we get mad at ourselves where we think that cracking the whip, so to speak, you know, speaking internally to ourselves harshly, being mean to ourselves, like that's somehow going to help us to do better but it doesn't. It actually makes us want to eat more food <laughs> because being with us, being me in my life feels miserable when that's the self-talk, when that's the inner narrative. So, you know, just to be able to enjoy life as you on this planet, it's really worthwhile to stop judging yourself, to offer yourself kindness and compassion. That doesn't necessarily mean letting yourself off the hook. That's what everybody's worried about. Then I'll just eat everything and I'll just lay on the couch and I'll never be productive. No, you won't. <laughs> You'll actually feel safe enough to go out there and do things knowing that if you mess up, it's going to be okay because you won't abandon yourself. You won't beat yourself up. You won't uh, be mean to yourself over it. It's essentially offering yourself unconditional love. So I think those two are, are just absolutely huge. And then the other thing I would say is I just want to touch on exercise because we haven't talked about that too much. There's so much, especially in the weight loss world about like the types of exercise that will help you to lose weight the fastest and, you know, exercising with the purpose of trying to lose weight. And I think it's so much more important to connect to the idea that human bodies are meant to move. It actually feels good to move a human body, especially if you can find a way to move that you enjoy rather than telling yourself, I have to go on the elliptical for 30 minutes, like, and you don't like the elliptical, <laughs> you know, like, what do you like to do? Maybe it's like playing tennis or getting out and playing golf. And you, you know, you walk with your bag instead of taking the cart or getting out into nature or taking a dance class or, you know, just, just other things like, and, and not having that be like, something that you're doing because you're trying to lose weight, because we know that exercise does not actually help with weight loss. It does help with weight maintenance, but not with weight loss, but like reconnecting to your body in that way. Like this is part of one of the benefits of being a human on this earth, being able to enjoy moving your body. So just keep at it until you find something that you enjoy. If you're already doing something, ask yourself, do I like this? Like, why do I do this? If you do it because you feel great, it elevates your mood, you're just a happier person, you connect with your friends, amazing, keep doing it. If you're like, I'm doing this because, uh, you know, like out of fear or worry or feeling like, you know, obligation, I would reconsider that because that's also something that we're not usually willing to do ongoing either. And then we're exercising in fits and spurts as well. So I think that that can really change people's relationship um, with exercise. If someone wanted to learn more about you, learn more about the book, How to Lose Weight for the Last Time, where would you like for me to send them? Yeah. Well, the book is available anywhere you can buy books. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent booksellers, even internationally, it's available. There's also an audiobook uh, version on Audible that I did narrate. And there's actually some some audio extras on there as well. If people are, you know, if they're listening to a podcast, they might like to listen to books as well. So those are all available. Um, my website is katrinaubelmd.com. There's some free resources there. And then also within the book, um, we have, I think with basically every single chapter almost, 
um, we have some additional resources to offer because you know what we do, what do we all do? We've all done this, buy a book and then it just sits (laughs) <laughs> we don't, we don't read it or we kind of flip through or, you know, we just don't take action on it. So those resources will help you to take action on what you're learning in the book so that you actually start to apply this to your life. So those are available for free as well. Yeah. And there's a lot more to this book than what we were able to discuss today. You know, your hunger scale. Yeah. I wish I could have gotten into that because uh, I think that's brilliant. Then just the opportunity to really do the deep dive into the mindfulness and mindset stuff. Uh, you really got good yeah. on that. So thank you for that. Um, and Dr. Yubel, thank you for being a part of 40 Plus Fitness. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. Welcome back, Raz. Hey, Ellen. Wow. I could have listened to you guys for another hour. Talk about that book, um, how to lose weight for the last time, brain-based solutions. I, it's right up our alley. I love the mindset start. Yeah. It, it was so funny because as I was going through the book, you know, I have my, I always have my talking points and I send those over. And as I was going, I realized, okay, we're going long. <laughs> if I ask everything I want to ask, then this is going to be a very, very long podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't even ask, like, I wanted to talk about her hunger scale because mm-hmm. this is a really interesting tool when you sit down mm-hmm. to eat. And if you really focus on it, it's going to keep you very mindful of how you feel while mm-hmm. you're eating. And the principle is this, as you think about a scale from a negative 10 to a positive 10, And so, you know, I I forget which way the scale flipped, but it basically, if you find yourself getting to like a negative four, meaning you're really, Mm -hmm. really hungry, starting to get hungry, starting to feel hungry, you go ahead and eat, you know, you don't skip meals unless you don't feel that hunger. Mm -hmm. So she does, you know, does talk about intermittent fasting as a tool. Sure. But uh, beyond that, she says, you know, eat before you get too, too hungry Mm -hmm. and then only eat to a point where you're at a four, not a 10. And so there's a principle of eating. It's a, there's a Japanese statement for it called harahachi boo, which basically, and I probably butchered that. So if you <laughs> speak Japanese and I said it wrong, you know, correct me, but I'm sorry. At any rate, it's, it's just basically a principle of eating to you're about 80% full. And I think mm-hmm. most of us are aware of that. We don't want to get overstuffed. We don't want that bad feeling. Right. So if you're eating to a point where you're almost full as time passes, you'll notice that you feel that fullness and you ate just the right amount. If you eat oh. to a point where you're just no longer hungry, mm-hmm. by that point, you've probably overeaten. Sure. You know, it's really important to sit with that hunger feeling. You know, as a kid, I was told I couldn't leave the table till I finished my meal. And it's a behavior that kind of sticks. You know, I, I look at my plate and my kid's plate when they were little and I'm like, oh, can't let that food go to waste, you know? Yeah. And that's a true statement. And she mm-hmm. brings that up in the book is that that's a part of the whole conditioning as we grew up mm-hmm. uh, is to eat a certain way and eat everything that's on our plate. Right. And it's just really, really hard to break that. Mm-hmm. One thing you could do is just buy smaller dinner plates, Right. you know? <laughs> yeah. And then just buying smaller dinner plates, you're Mm. going to have less food at the table. Also preparing your food in the kitchen on the plate, plating it and carrying it out Mm -hmm. rather than having, you know, a buffet sitting in front of you uh, that you just keep eating on. But that self-awareness, that thinking Mm -hmm. through of what you're doing, what you're feeling, your thoughts, and Mm -hmm. just kind of building that bridge and understanding if you're doing something that you don't want to be doing. Mm-hmm. there's probably some thought process, some emotional process that's going on th- that you're feeling a certain way when mm-hmm. you're doing it. And if you can break that down and then put that pause in there, mm-hmm. give yourself some space, uh, it'll help you choose your actions a little bit wiser. You know, the other interesting thing she mentioned was her relationship with peanut butter <laughs> a while back. <laughs> and like many runners, uh, yeah, I do have a very strong relationship with peanut butter. And it is funny because it is a go-to of mine. You know, if I get stressed or anxious, I first like to go for a run. Two, I do like to pour myself a cup of coffee because 
when I drink my coffee, I make myself sit and ruminate. So I need to think about things when I have my coffee, but peanut butter, I do the same thing she does. I'll, I'll take a spoonful of peanut butter out of the jar. And a lot of the times it is an emotional, it's not necessarily that I'm hungry or that I need peanut butter for any reason whatsoever, <laughs> but it, it's interesting. The relationships that we have with food that can be soothing for different reasons. Yeah. And there's, there's just so much in this book. So I'd encourage anyone who's having difficulty changing the way you eat and you're eating foods that are not on your diet, not on your plan. Mm -hmm. And you find that just kind of being a normal thing for you. This is a good book because she's got a lot of tools and a lot of things in there for you to do a lot more deep diving into your relationship with food and improving it. Oh, for sure. The eight part protocol she has seems like a really helpful list of tools and things to think about. And yeah, we've talked it, about journaling it, in the past. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't have to be this crazy thing. You know, some of my clients, I'll be working with them. I'll just say, take a picture of your food, everything mm-hmm. you're going to eat all day, mm-hmm. just take pictures of it, post it into my app. Uh, and, and then we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is often enough with them just as soon as they sit down to eat something, taking a picture of it for them to, to kind of think through, okay, why am, why do I have these Pringles sitting here? Mm-hmm. You know, why am I eating them? Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's the feelings I'm having? Is there something going on with my body that I just need to be aware of? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I really hungry or is this right. something else? And, sure. you know, uh, one of the things she said in the book was that every one of us is an emotional eater. Mm. And it's true. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone can deny you might at first say, oh, no, 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 I'm not an emotional leader, but I can say, okay, well, if, if you go to a baseball game and you feel like you have to have a hot dog and a beer because you're mm-hmm. at a baseball game, that's emotional eating. Sure. If you've ever sat down with a bag of something and you're watching a sporting event or watching a TV program and you eat the whole thing, mm-hmm. that's emotional eating. Mm-hmm. If you're not fully aware and mindful of what you're eating, you're emotionally eating. For sure. You know, the way we celebrate birthdays and all the things, you know, there is a lot of emotion tied to that stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's the big part of this is managing your hunger, but, but Mm -hmm. living in it and understanding that sometimes um, we're over hungry and sometimes there's over desire for foods Mm -hmm. um, and just recognizing those and then trying to build a protocol using these eight parts mm-hmm. to, to go through and say, okay, this is what I'm going to, I'm going to try these eight protocol steps mm-hmm. and maybe I implement them, implement them one at a time, mm-hmm. but just basically saying, this is, this is how I'm going to eat. And yeah. once you get that plan together, sticking with it long enough to see that it's working, yeah. um, I think it can do a lot of good for a lot of people. Yeah. That was really great. Sounds like a really great book to have. Yeah. It's, it's a really good one. So awesome. All right. Well, uh, Rachel, I'll talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Ellen. Take care. Next time on the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Mark Lauren and discuss his book, Strong and Lean, nine-minute daily workouts to build your best body, no equipment, anywhere, anytime. Until then, have a happy and healthy week.